I read a newspaper article a couple weeks ago saying that the Olympic Committee was thinking about getting rid of wrestling and no longer having it as an Olympic event. I just think that's a terrible idea. It really bummed me out. And I, I read another article this morning saying that cooler heads have prevailed, but they put it to a vote and wrestling will remain an Olympic event. And that made me pretty dang happy. I can't wait for the Olympics to start so that I can see The Undertaker choke-slamming Russians. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Delbert McClinton. Delbert's a singer and a songwriter. He lives right here in Nashville, Tennessee. And you can find out everything you need to know about Delbert at Delbert.com. We had a huge response last week for uh, part one of the show with Delbert. So I'm really excited to get to share part two. I'd like to say again that it was just beautiful to get to sit and Delbert's living room and get to chat with him and you know just get to hear all these stories there's so much history and he was really really nice enough to share it with me and really generous with all the information so here's part two of Delbert McClinton when Bruce Chanel got booked to go to do a tour of the British Isles with Hey Baby was big the promoter says well we got to have the harmonica player too you know so I got to go, and uh, we were over there about about six weeks, I think. Um, we were over there a long time, but uh, the first two to three weeks, we were doing shows at Granada Theaters, which are like Paramount Theaters here, your big ornate old theaters, you know. And and it was a package show, the Bruce Chanel show, but the, the music would start like about three in the afternoon and go till late at night with I would come out and do a couple of songs with this band that we'd re- they had for us to play with and we rehearsed with I'd go out and do a couple of songs I'd bring Bruce out and uh well it, it was the first night we played there uh we went over there uh real early I don't know it was still morning when we got over there to rehearse with this band and we got to this place, Maidstone, Maidhead, Maidhead, Maidstone. Maidenstone. Maidenstone. When we got there, there were two little girls there going apeshit when they saw Bruce. Just, and I'd never really seen that happen. You know, I'd seen, uh, I'd seen all the pictures of people going crazy for Elvis and whatever and all. But I'd never seen, I'd never been in the moment with it. And they, they were just out of control. And, of course, he signed some things for them and, we went in, and then we rehearsed, and then we stayed around, and then we did the show. And then when we would leave, they would transport us all on a bus, the whole 
whole day's worth of music, me and Bruce, and there were about five or six bands and other entertainers, and we'd all get on this bus and go to a away from the crowd and where it would disperse, you know, the bus would drop people here and there. But mostly, you know, we'd all go to a central point and get out. And, and we were all sitting on this bus and was getting ready to leave, and there's just a crowd all around the bus. And the bus is just inching along, and I heard, heard, kept hearing this particular person just screaming at the top of their lungs. I looked down, and these two little girls were holding up their arms, and they had cut Bruce's name in their arms. looked like with a razor blade. I mean, it was... And I just thought, God, this is not. But to back up a little bit, after Bruce finished his show, he turned around and set his guitar on a stand, and he went down to shake a couple of hands, and they grabbed him. And I reached out and grabbed him by the back of his, his pants and his belt, luckily because they were all grabbing at him. I mean, they, it was crazy. And I grabbed it and got him back, and they tore his shirt. Somebody liked to pull his finger off with a ring he had on. And they had a bit of a barricade down there, but they were coming over it. Yeah. Or not over it, but leaning way over it. Anyway, it was crazy. I'd never seen that before, you know. And uh, that was my true introduction to rock and roll madness, I suppose. <laughs> but he didn't go down there to shake hands again with anybody after that. The, the last three weeks we were there, we were doing club dates. And uh, we played the Cavern in uh, Liverpool. And it was, it was the odd thing about this, before the Beatles, they showed up that night. Bruce and I were based in a hotel out of London. And we had been making fun of how about, you know, they go 30 miles and they spend the night. And we say, shit, we drive 400 miles in Texas to do the show and drive home. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, making shit up, you know. And, but, you know, they did. They would uh, we'd sp spend the night if it was, you know, more than a two-hour ride. Anyway, when we left London this one time, nobody told us we were going to be out for four days. I took the shirt I was going to wear and the shirt I had on and everything else. You know, no toothbrush, no razor blade, no nothing. We thought we were coming back that night. We were out for four nights. We ended up in Liverpool in the afternoon early, and I don't have much of a beard, but I needed to shave bad. And I finally, I think I borrowed a razor, maybe. Anyway, and it was nothing but cold water. And I was nasty. My white shirt that I wore under my jacket was just nasty. Well, you know, we'd been living it. And we were traveling in a World War II British ambulance with a hole in the floor about two and a half feet wide where you take care of business. That was our mode of travel with <laughs> diesel smoke constantly, and that's, that was our travel with this band. So uh, we were playing the Cavern that night, and, and John and, and, I don't know, a couple of other guys, I don't know whether they were the Beatles too, but John was pretty overwhelming. He didn't know who he was, and I didn't. But he was, anyway, they came, came out there that night, and... and and hung out with us and, and shot the breeze. And But the night that we played with them first, this was after we'd played with them, because John came out to three or four different shows, you know. He and some of the other guys, um, uh, I don't know if they were the Beatles or not, but John was definitely there. He took me out one night, and we were off in London and took me to places I thought I'd never see. But I did that night. I mean, places like, like, like during the beatnik kind of shit, you know, where there's 
lights and pillows laying around, people doing whatever the hell they wanted to do. And that was new for me as well. <laughs> that wasn't Fort Worth. Uh, that wasn't Fort Worth. But uh, the night that we played with them, it was in New Brighton. We were on the last ferry across the Mercy that night because the storm was coming in. We just barely made it. You know, I mean, the, they were talking about not even taking that last ferry, but they did. And uh, Bruce and I were, it, it was a gray, rainy, stormy, ugly day. And we were pretty worn. And we placed, the place we played was called the castle. And I think it was an old castle, part of one or something. It was a huge, huge, you, it was one of those places where you could look out one of the windows and straight down to the ocean, you know, one of those. And, uh. We were in the dressing room, you know, and just just really wrung out. And this girl that had been following Bruce around came up and said, y'all got to come down and hear this group. They're just back from Germany, and they're the hottest thing in the north of England. So we went down, and it was Beatles, and they were great. But we'd been hearing all kind of great music, you know, from different people. But, you know, once again, here's this other group that's also phenomenal. Yeah, an awful lot to try to absorb because coming from where we were musically and what they were doing, they were really on top of shit. Uh, I remember walking down the street in London and every little kiosk had five or six music magazines. There wasn't even a Rolling Stone in the U.S. at that time. The only thing you could get in the U.S. was Hit Parade, which would tell you an artist's favorite color, you know, <laughs> shit like that. And people walking with a gig bag and a guitar in it, and it was you know, like this is a good place, you know. I mean, you know, in Fort Worth, if you were a musician, you had to pay two months' rent because you were not considered a viable occupant to rent an apartment. So you pay two or three months up front in case you run out. That's the way it was. But over there, uh, they kind of demanded a, a, uh, a respect. It was already moved along beyond what it was here because – the people were in on it with them, which was really not happening here yet to rock and roll. It was still people fighting against it, you know. They were over there. They were headlong into it. It was all it was all a pretty pretty majestic uh, trip for me. You got to put it into perspective, you know. At that time, we were all going to change the world, and everybody was kind of on relatively common ground. That was, uh, it was great. There's the legend or myth of you giving a harmonica lesson. Well, yeah, I did. You know, it had got, it was a unique thing because there wasn't that much harmonica in pop music, I guess, if that's what you want to call it, whatever Hey Baby was at the time, I would say probably pop music. Uh, so <clears throat> when we got over there, nearly every night, somebody in one of the other bands around would come to our dressing. We were all, everybody wanted to learn about each other. It was, you know, and we'll have a harmonica and we'll show them something, show them how I did that thing. Hey, baby. And the night I met John, I remember, I remember he asked me which one I thought was kind of unique. He asked if I played it on a chromatic harp. And I told him, I tried to play one of those once, and that's too much like a job. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I told him no and showed him, but what, you can't show anybody anything. You tell, tell And we hung out and talked that, you know, talked harmonics just about all the time we were together. That was 
the main topic of conversation. It wasn't until, until years later when when uh, somebody mentioned that in talking with John that he was influenced by the harmonica on Hey Baby. And it went from there to be romanticized, and I taught him everything he knew. <laughs> that I was the fifth Beatle at one point, you know. And it was, it was, uh, it's, you know, it was all romanticized, but it, everything is, and if it doesn't get romanticized, well, then something's terribly wrong. Well said, well said. <laughs> you moved to Los Angeles in 72? 71, I think. Yeah. I was going to ask you if there's a story leading into how Emmy Lou Harris cut two more bottles of wine, or how that. There's happened. not. I uh, I heard about it when it came out. Oh, really? Yeah, I was very un un unhip to publishing and all, and uh, unfortunately, I signed a lot of publishing away back in the day because I was told this was the way you do it by some low life scumbag motherfuckers. I can't think of. Uh, any other way to say it. <laughs> facts are stubborn things. Yeah, you know, facts are stubborn. <laughs> so, uh, Clint and I didn't know anybody out there, really. Uh, and the guy we went out there to live with was a drummer that I, the first drummer I ever worked with. And, and he had a house in Topanga Canyon where we could live while we tried to put a band together. And so we went out there with nothing but a handful of songs, didn't know anybody and tried to make a go of it. And, and we kind of got lucky in that we got a, a deal with Paramount Studios in, in Hollywood, recording studio, to do a spec deal. We, went, we met Daniel Moore and, and T-Bone Burnett. They were working together with some people, and, and uh, we were doing a record with them on spec at Paramount. And Earl McGrath, <clears throat> who was a good friend of... Uh, Ahmed Erdogan, who was Atlantic Records. He happened in the studio for some reason and heard us working in there and came in and offered us a record deal. And we thought we made it. And we made two records together out there that, uh, well, not out there, one out there and one in Alabama. It made a little noise, but, you know, didn't really do much nationally. Or we didn't make a dime, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, and then Glenn and I split up and uh, we both went back to Texas after we did a, a three month tour supporting Delbert Glenn uh, open for John Mayall and after that ended uh, there was no money for us to maintain a band anymore because we didn't make anything there either we were supposed to but uh, we never got paid and wasn't anything we could do about it except kill the motherfucker. And I wasn't ready to do that. Anyway, so we kind of dissolved the band, and we both went back to Texas for a short time. Then Glenn moved back to California, and I moved to Nashville to try my tricks here, you know. And uh, I don't know how many records I made here before. Uh, but every record company I signed with, from that point to this point, all but one of them went out of business while I was on the label, usually with a song in the top 100, way in the low in the top 100. I mean, way, way high in the top 100. But however you look at it, it was not in the top 10. It was three digits 
So, you know, but I mean, but that's, that's just the way, that's what happened. That's the way it is. But you kept touring and plugging away. Well, I had to. That's how I made a living was working on the road. I was working eight days, eight nights a week. Yeah, I knew, I got to know those guys, not asshole buddies, you know, but uh, they started coming out to, when we played Lone Star in New York, Lone Star Cafe. Uh, there's, there's one night that they were there. Uh, this is Belushi and Ackroyd? Yeah, them, Buffett, several other artists. But... Uh, that's, that was the first night I met John, and, and shortly after that, I don't know, you know, it was another time that we went back to New York, and he came out, and he said, man, I want you to, or uh, he said, well, I, I want copies of all your records. We're getting to go in and make a, a record. And I <clears throat> I had some with me, and I took them, took, he was staying at the plaza in New York, and I took them over to him, and we hung out there for a little while, and, and uh Next thing I know, they did it on Briefcase Full of Blues. B-movie, the song B-movie, Boxcar Blues. It, it seems like the, the most success that I've had has kind of come in the back door. Because like I said about Emmy Lou doing that song, I didn't know she had done it until it was done. I was probably notified somewhere by my publishing company. But like I said, I, I don't do business. That's not what I do. I go and play music. I can't keep up and pay the bills. I can't, you know, that's not what I, I mean, I've done it and I can do it if I have to, but it sure takes a lot away from my thinking time. <laughs> John was like a little kid. Uh, it was very much like a little kid. Uh, he was almost naive in some of the questions he would ask and stuff, you know. But he was he was John Belushi, and, and what he did was phenomenal. But uh, he could, just one-on-one, -on -one and, and he could be very, very much a little kid-like. Was he living fast at this time? Very much so. In fact, the first night, first night that I ever did uh, Saturday Night Live, he, in fact, he helped get that deal. But we were on stage. They were doing commercial, and they were on stage. We were ready to start playing. He came running out on stage, and he had white powder all over his fucking face, and he ran around the club and said, no blow till after the show. Kind of premonition, I guess, but uh, it's funny nonetheless. Were you nervous? Was that a... Sure, I was nervous. Were you hip to Saturday Night Live? Oh, yeah. Well, not as hip as most people, though. You know, it was... Uh, it had been going on a, a few years before I even knew anything about it. But I was busy. <laughs> Damn, I was busy. You were working Saturday nights. I was working Saturday nights, yeah. <laughs> Well, the main reason that I moved to Nashville for a second time, as I said, I'd moved here in 72 or 3 or 4. Shit, I can't remember now. But the, the last time I moved to Nashville was because uh, the IRS took my house in Texas and attached everything that had my name on it. And I kind of became a non-existing person. Uh, I had a, I had a, a an accountant in Austin, who 
got me in a tax shelter that got disallowed. Same kind of thing Willie got into several years ago. And the IRS came and said, we want it all. And I had this house, little corner house that was redone inside. I mean, it was a nice place, but you know, I, yeah, they came, they took it. I mean, I had to sell it or they said they would sell it. This was in 88 and I got $88,000 for it. My mother died in 88. I had a lockbox at the bank that was 88. Anyway, I had to leave. And so uh, I knew that Nashville was the most likely place for me to get anything done because I could afford to, to probably afford to live there. Sure as hell couldn't afford to live in L.A. And I didn't want to go back to L.A. Um, and like I said, I had so many friends. Gary Nicholson, who is still my songwriting partner and co-producer, Gary had already been living here for a few years, and, and I think he left from playing with me when he was still living in Dallas and then moved here. The Nashville. So um, I, I knew I knew I knew Bruce Chanel lives here. I don't know. It's, it's, I can't recall who else now at the time, but I knew that I had more friends in the music business who were serious music people here than in Fort Worth. I used to, used to work with with some guys in Fort Worth, brothers, and uh, I'd get a gig, and one of them was a bass player, and one of them was a guitar player. And they didn't want to know how much it paid. They wanted to know how much beer they could buy with the money we'd make. <laughs> That's how serious it was. So, you know, I had to get out. Yeah. Uh, so I moved to Nashville, and that was in uh, 91. <clears throat> and uh, life's been really good since then to me. Uh, that's what, that's The success that I've, I've had is, <clears throat> has been since then, really. Things seem to be going wonderfully. For it's you. going better than ever. That's beautiful. It is. Beautiful. I'm a very fortunate guy. Can you tell me about your current project? Your well, I just finished a record. Uh, it's just been out about a month. The new Delbert and Glenn record, and it's making a little noise, getting some good reviews. But <clears throat> you know, I've every record I've ever put out, I've always thought, boy, this is going to do it. You know, <clears throat> and so I'm not it's so quick to to count chickens before they hatch, so to speak, anymore. Although <clears throat> it doesn't matter because we went in and make a hell of a good record, which is what we wanted to do. And and it's making some noise, and Glenn's going out on the road with me and working some, and we're having a good time. And, and I've been writing a lot lately, and I've got enough songs. I'm going to go probably in the next two or three months and uh, start a new solo record. I don't know. I hope to get started on by late November, probably. I've got my wife and I are going to China oh. for uh, two weeks. Uh, Is that your first time to China? Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We went to Peru last year, man, to the uh, Machu, Machu, Machu Picchu and Cusco, the Sacred Valley. It was unbelievable. You can't take a picture of Peru because it, there's. It's, it's too, there's too much of it. You can't, you know, it doesn't make any sense unless you can look 360 degrees and see what Peru is. Uh, I'm, I'll go back. I loved it, really did. Both of us, my wife and I. It has to feel beautiful to be on top of Machu Picchu and think about a kid from Texas. <clears throat> well, you know, the thing that, that I loved the most about it the whole time from the moment we planned it, 
you know, I've wanted to, I've been reading about Machu Picchu ever since I could remember. And I was, and so I started thinking, God damn, I'm, I hope I can deal with the no air and climbing and walking. And I did great. I did. I had no problem at all, really. Some of the people around me, lips were turning blue and shit, you know. But I guess it's because I've been singing forever that I've got a maximized lung capacity in some way. Anyway, I had no trouble with the altitude. I had trouble, but I didn't have any disastrous moments or even near disastrous moments. So that was great. <laughs> it was all cake after that. Well, I appreciate you inviting me into your living room. Well, hey, I appreciate meeting you. It's fun. Thanks, Otis. Well, hey, man, thank you for giving a shit. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Delbert for inviting me into his living room here in Nashville, Tennessee. And you can find out everything you need to know about Delbert at Delbert.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.